this morning's this morning's scripture is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 to 16 and can be found on page 1051 1051 of the Pew Bible 1 Corinthians chapter 2 When I came to you brothers announcing the testimony of God to you I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom for I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration of the Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. However, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined for the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what eye did not see and ear did not hear, and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit, because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you so much, guys, for leading us in worship this morning. My name is Jesse Hill. I'm the worship arts pastor here. I didn't expect to be speaking to you this morning, but as you've already heard, Pastor Russell is sick. I talked to him on the phone on Thursday. He sounded uh, like somebody you wouldn't want speaking to you. He didn't sound his best. So he asked me to fill in for him, which meant I had to ask Brad to fill in for me. Thank you to Brad. And uh, here we are. But I am always glad to be able to share, to share the Lord's word with you, and I am happy to be here. I wish it was different circumstances, but I am happy to be here. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our ears to your word. Help us to hear your word with clarity, Lord. Help us to hear your word and to respond. I pray that each one of us would grow deeper in faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I'm going to start out a little bit differently. If you can indulge me, I'd like to start out by playing a song. Uh, that's kind of what I do, right? So, I'm going to play a, uh, this is a Bruce Springsteen song, which you don't get to hear every week at church, right? But I like Springsteen, and this song really introduces what I want to talk about this morning. So I'll just play the first couple of verses. This is, uh, it's a song from 2005 called Devils and Dust. Uh, so here we go. Got my finger on the trigger But I don't know who to trust When I look into your eyes It's just devils and dust We're a long, long way from home, Bobby Home's a long, long way from us I feel a dirty wind blowing Devils and dust But I got God on my side Now I'm just trying to survive If what you do to survive Kills the things you love Oh, fear is a powerful thing It can turn your heart black You can trust It'll take your God-filled soul Fill it with devils and dust Oh, fear's a powerful thing It can turn your heart black, you can trust It'll take your God-filled soul Fill it with devils and dust So that's a song, uh, all of the songs on that album are about soldiers and war, and he's, he's writing about this experience of being in a dangerous place and having an experience of fear. And did you hear that line? He says, fear is a powerful thing. It can turn your heart black, you can trust. I love Bruce Springsteen because he always so succinctly gets at kind of the, the truth of human nature, at least to me. Fear is a powerful thing. It can turn your heart black, you can trust. It'll take your God-filled soul and fill it with devils and dust. Sometimes fear is a powerful thing. It controls us in, in all kinds of, of ways that maybe we don't, uh, that we don't always see. So that's what I want to talk to you about today is fear. And uh, maybe more specifically, what does fear have to do with our faith? Or what does our faith have to do with fear? You know, there's different kinds of uh, fear. There's healthy fear. I am afraid of getting hit by a bus, and that fear keeps me from walking into traffic. It's very helpful. If I didn't have that fear, I would run into traffic like our two-year-old daughter would like to do sometimes. She doesn't have this natural fear of getting hit by a bus. But if I were to say, I'm afraid of getting hit by a bus, and so I'm never leaving my house again because there's buses outside, that would be pretty unhealthy. He would say, oh, that fear is controlling him in some kind of negative way. To some extent, 
having some kind of fear in you is just part of the human experience. We all live day to day with fear. We may not always be conscious of it, but we always have fear. I'd like to do something, uh, if you can indulge me one more time. Has anybody ever had writer's block? You are supposed to be writing something, you're having a little trouble, you feel uninspired. It's like the words just aren't there. Or it doesn't have to be writer's block. Everybody who tries to create something has this experience. Painters have this experience, chefs do. They want to cook something, but nothing seems that interesting to make. Or maybe you've had that experience. I want to get lunch, just nothing seems that interesting to me. I'm hungry, but nothing is appetizing. Right? Or, or maybe you've looked in your closet, a closet filled with clothes, and you say, but I have nothing to wear. You have things to wear, but none of it is inspiring to you. So these kind of things, this is what you call a creative block. And the main one that we think of is, is writer's block, right? And so people have their different remedies for this. They might say, well, the thing to do for writer's block is you take a walk and the idea will come to you. And that often works. Or some people say you take a very long shower and all your best ideas come to you in the shower, right? And then you come back out and you write something. But sometimes writer's block can go on for months and months. And so there's a book that was written about how to deal with this kind of creative block. It's called Art and Fear. I think it came out in the 80s. And what they say is any kind of creative block comes from uh, fear. Some kind of fear that's in you that you haven't named and it's holding you back. And so maybe your fear is uh, you're, you're an author who's trying to write a novel and you are afraid that your novel will not be any good and people will hate it. And that's stopping you from writing. But maybe your fear is totally unrelated to what you're writing. Maybe you're trying to write a novel and somewhere in the back of your mind you're afraid, what if I get cancer? And that fear is somehow holding you back. So the idea of this book is everybody has fear in them. And if you're having trouble making something, then you should take some time and try to write down all of your fears that you have. Name them and then it will become easier to write. That's the idea behind the book. And it really works. So I'd like to do a little exercise with you. This is an exercise you could do if you're ever having trouble with writer's block. We'll see how it goes. So what I want you to do is everyone close your eyes. Uh, nothing spooky is going to happen. Just everybody close your eyes. And I want you to think of something that you are afraid of. Just name one thing in your mind. It doesn't have to be anything too serious. It can be somewhat trivial, maybe you're afraid of spiders or something like that, but it has to be something that you're genuinely afraid of. Um, maybe you're afraid of getting sick. Maybe you're afraid that I'm going to ask you to announce your secret fear to the person next to you. I'm not going to, but, but that's a fine fear to name. All right, so now that you've got that, I want to ask you to think seriously, and again, I'm not going to ask you to publicize this. Does that fear actually come from some deeper fear. Is there a bigger, deeper fear that's actually motivating that fear? So uh, maybe I'm afraid that I might get sick, but what I'm really afraid of is being alone in a hospital or something like that. Or I'm afraid that Jesse is going to ask me to announce my fear to everybody because really I'm afraid of being found out in some way. So I'm guessing that most of you were able to think of fairly quickly a broader category of fear that's motivating the first one you thought of. And if we were to go on, you could probably think of a third level of fear that's deeper down and, and maybe quite dark. You can open your eyes now. 
I'm guessing that most of you found, oh yeah, there's some things I'm afraid of. I wasn't thinking of them when we started this, but there are some fears that I just kind of carry around in me. So if you were having writer's block, the idea is you name these things and it would become easier to write something. Um, all the preaching books say that preaching is supposed to be edifying and encouraging, and now I've got you thinking about deep, dark fears. Things will improve. Uh, this will be encouraging, I'm pretty sure. We all live with some kind of fear. It's just part of the human experience. So the question is, if we are people of faith, what do we do with, with the experience of fear? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to suggest to you that there are three, three different kind of ways we can respond to fear that are all related to each other. That's lamenting, prayer, and mission. And we're going to go through these, these three things. Open your Bibles. We're going to be in Psalm 27 today. So open your Bibles to Psalm 27. Uh, I won't be putting the text on the screen, so you'll want to have that with you. Um, while we're going through this, I'm going to, uh, we're going to sing a song along the way. So I have found, if I have learned scripture written to a song, it's way easier to remember than if I just memorize something. And I have also found that if uh, in, in difficult times, I am very likely to remember a little song lyric and maybe not as likely to remember some theological principle. So we're going to sing some of the verses that we're talking about this morning as we go along. You know, there's one, uh, do you guys remember the Maranatha praise group from like the 80s? My parents were members of the cassette tape club. Every month we got a cassette tape in the mail. So they had one that was from uh, 2 Timothy. I still remember it. And in times when I've been afraid, I sing this little tune. It goes, uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a strong mind. That comes back to me in the strangest moments. Uh, and in times when I might be worried about something, that little tune will come back to me. And it's kind of a silly little tune but I still remember it. So I'm going to teach you guys not that tune, but a different one. And uh, here we go. I'll, I'll sing it, and then I'll ask you guys to sing it after that. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? One more time. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? That's good. So that's the first little bit. We're going to learn some more. If you've looked in Psalm 27, that's the first verse of Psalm 27, basically, depending on what version you have. I think that's the NIV. The Holman is probably the same. But if you've got some other version, it might be worded differently. That's Psalm 27, verse 1. So Psalm 27 is one of my favorite psalms for a bunch of reasons. I just find it continually interesting in all kinds of ways. Uh, this is a psalm of David, it says at the top. And and you might read in a book somewhere, this was probably actually written way after David, and so maybe it's a song uh, inspired by the life of David or in the tradition of David, or maybe it's part of an oral tradition of songs David sang. 
I don't know. For our purposes this morning, what we can say for sure is that the Holy Spirit has inspired this psalm, and it tells us some really cool things about the faith that David had and God's faithfulness to him. So that's what I want to look at. Now, a lot of the psalms are, can be described as being open in some way, meaning that they're not terribly specific about the events they're referring to. And what that means is people in all different kinds of situations through, through history have been able to sing these psalms, have been able to pray with these psalms and find them meaningful because they're, kind of, they're kind of general in some sense. And, and this psalm is like that. But traditionally, a lot of people have associated this psalm with a fairly early period in David's life, uh, way before he was king. So uh, what's the first thing that we know about David? Anybody? Goliath. David was a poor shepherd boy, totally unimportant until he did this thing. He killed this giant Goliath, and then he was very, everybody was very impressed. He became like a folk hero in Israel. People sang songs about him. Everybody loved David. But that created some problems for David, right? Because there was a king, King Saul, and King Saul started seeing, oh my goodness, people love David. People are singing songs about this guy. And he was hearing rumors David was going to become king. And King Saul didn't like that because he himself was already king. So Saul became obsessed with finding and killing David. And he is going to great lengths. And one day... Uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, who is David's friend, he comes to David and he says, uh, my father is going to kill you. You need to run for your life. And that's in uh, 1 Samuel 20. So David, David runs. He leaves his home. He's a grown-up now with like a wife and a house and stuff. He leaves his house. He leaves his wife. He runs off. He doesn't even have time to bring any extra belongings with him. He doesn't have extra clothes or food or a weapon to protect himself. He's just running. And he runs to this town called uh, Nob, if I remember right. And this is where the priests live in Nob. And he goes to this priest and he talks him. He kind of coerces him into giving him this special sacred bread and to giving him the sword that Goliath had had. So he's got a weapon. He's got, he's got a sword. And, and uh, he's there with this priest. And there is a man who is also a shepherd who is worshiping there where the priest is at. And he would seem to be a friend of David's. He would seem that way. But he sees David. He sees this priest giving these supplies to David. And he goes off and he tells Saul secretly, guess what? I saw this priest. He was giving David supplies. He was aiding and abetting a fugitive. You need to do something about this. So King Saul sends his army, literally his army, to the town of the priests and kills everyone. He kills every priest, every man, every woman, every child, and I think even the animals, if I'm remembering correctly. It's pretty serious. This is, a, Saul is a, a madman at this point. David has heard about this, and he runs off into a neighboring kingdom, Gath, which is where Goliath was from, actually. And the king there knows that David is coming, and he says, wait a minute, I've heard a lot about this guy. People sing songs about him. People think he might become king. What if he tries to take over my throne? So David says, well, I'm going to pretend to be insane. So he pretends to be a lunatic while he's in this other kingdom so that the king won't kill him. And then that's not working out so great. And so David has to flee again, and he winds up living in a cave. That's in uh, 1 Samuel 22. That is the situation in life that people have often attributed this psalm to. 
This is the person who says, the Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Does it seem to you that David had people to fear, to be afraid of? You can say yes. King Saul, the king of Gath, literally every person he meets might turn him in. He's got a lot of people to be afraid of. But this is what he says. The Lord is my light and salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's an interesting way to start this psalm, right? So Psalm 27 is, is also interesting in the sense that it's almost like two poems that have put, been put together into one thing. They're talking about the same things. There's certainly some overlap between them, but, but they aren't. This, there's a clear divide kind of in the middle. And so first, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And verses 1 through 6, there's a lot of different ways you can describe what's happening here. I'm thinking of this as being a lament, a psalm of, of lament. And there's probably other ways you could describe this. Now, lament gets a bad name in our culture because we think lamenting, isn't that like complaining but more so? And Canadians don't like complaining, so lamenting must be extra bad. But biblical lament is not the same thing as complaining. Biblical lament is about describing accurately the world around you from the perspective of faith. It's being almost journalistic about the, the realities of your world and saying, but God, I believe you can do something. Will you please do something? The world is not as you have intended it to be. That's what biblical lament is. So there's a lot of ways of describing the structure of lament. I got this structure from a book I read a long time ago. It seems pretty useful. I'm sure there are people in this room who could describe biblical lament better. Probably Kevin. Kevin, I'm sure he has lots of things to say about lament. But very briefly, I've used this format a few times, and it's been useful to me. So a lament is something like this. You start out with an address to God, and then you offer your complaint. This is the thing that's bothering you in the world. You confess your trust in God. You believe that God will be with you. And then, you're, then there's your petition. God, will you do this? Words of assurance. You believe that God will do this, that God will be with you. And then the vow of praise. After God has done these things, then I'm going to offer praise and thanksgiving and this kind of thing. And you can see something like this in a lot of the Psalms. In fact, some people say something like 40% of the Psalms are laments. Um, and so, I'm going to read through verses uh, 1 through 6 here and kind of describe how, how this is working. So it starts out uh, saying something about God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? And then comes the complaint. When evil, evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart is not afraid. We have this confession of trust. Even though a war breaks out against me, still I am confident. And then the petition. I have asked one thing from the Lord. This is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, seeking him in his temple. And this part is interesting because uh, there wasn't a temple during David's lifetime, right? That was built after he died. And then it's also interesting, the idea of seeing God, gazing on his beauty. A lot of the Psalms talk about hearing the Lord. Uh, it's all auditory stuff. And here we talk about seeing God and gazing on his beauty. Lots that could be said about that, but we're moving on. Words of assurance. 
For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. Finally, there's this vow of praise. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. So this isn't the only way you could describe the structure of this part of the psalm. Uh, other, I read some things where they said this is a uh, better described as a song of, of faithfulness or a song of trust or something like that. I'm, I'm thinking of it as a lament, but you could, you could call it different things. I think we should have a couple things in mind as we read this. The first is, we know David's background. We know that he is a person who went through periods of profound difficulty, danger, and outright fear that led to this lament. But we know the rest of the story, too. David didn't die in the cave. David went on to live a long life, and he did eventually become king, and he actually brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, and he offered songs and sacrifices and thanksgiving and all of these things, right? So we know the whole story, and God actually did deliver him. That's pretty cool. And what's especially cool about that, we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we offer our laments to God, we're talking to the same God who delivered David from this absolutely absurd situation that he was in. That should, that should give you some, some sense of faith, some sense of awe at what it is that we do when we, when we sing these songs to God every Sunday, when we pray to God. This is the same God who did this unbelievable thing for David. The second thing that I'm thinking is David's lament teaches us how to lament ourselves in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Now, having described David's circumstances ending up in the cave, I don't think anybody in here can quite relate to the experience of literally having a whole country's army searching for you to kill you. Um, but what we can say is that all of us do have some things that we're afraid of. They might not compare to the scale of David's fear, but we just did that exercise, and I'm guessing most of you had some things that came to mind that you're afraid of. And maybe if you didn't, if you went home this afternoon and said, I'm going to think really seriously. What is it that I'm afraid of? I guarantee you would come up with something. Human beings are afraid of some things. Sometimes it's a healthy emotion. Sometimes it's not. But this lament teaches us, even in the midst of very difficult, frightening circumstances, it teaches us how to lament to God. So that's pretty cool. Now, I'm going to teach you another little bit of a song before we move on to the second half of this psalm. If I can get this in here. So this comes from uh, verse 13 of Psalm 27. I will remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the time I will remain confident 
the psalm ends. That's verse 13 of the psalm that we just sang. It's very similar to how the psalm begins, right? So if we look at verses 7 through 14, the second half of this psalm, it's certainly related to the first half. It's talking about similar things, but we notice there's a, a pretty distinct difference between the first and the second half, and that is that in the first half, the psalmist is talking all about God. In the second half, the psalmist is talking to God, right? So uh, we might describe it this way. We'd say in the first half of Psalm 27, uh, the psalmist is writing about his theology. This is what he believes about God, even in his current situation. But in the second half, he puts his beliefs into action by praying to God, by addressing God directly. And this is really important for, for all of us because... We are people who have some beliefs about God, right? There are some things that we all believe. We, we have a statement of faith on our church website. There are things that we believe about God. We, we think that's what defines us as Christians, these beliefs that we have. So we believe that God is sovereign over the earth. Um, we believe that he formed the, formed the universe with his word. We believe that his spirit lives among us uh, and reveals Jesus to us and to the world. And we have beliefs uh, related to time, right? We believe that one day Jesus will return in power and glory, make the world right, that he will rescue his people and that we will enjoy God's presence forever. Right? These, are, these are beliefs that we have. And what Psalm 27 teaches us is our beliefs are meant to be put into action in prayer, So I'm going to read from, uh, starting at verse 7. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me. Answer me. My heart says this about you. You are to seek my face, and Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord. Lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. So much of this prayer uh, describes a situation of fear and transforms it into a situation of trusting God. I even uh, look at verse 10, even if my father and mother abandon me, that's a horrible, painful thing to go through. But the psalmist says, even then, the Lord cares for me. Even in a situation where the most trustworthy people in our lives let us down or if people betray us, we believe that we can trust in God. And so to pray this prayer, uh, one would have to have a real sense of, of adoption by God. To be able to say, even if my father and mother abandon me, Still, I will trust in him. Still, he will care for me. That's a statement of who you really belong to. This is a person who is not finding his identity in his nation or in his family because these things have all deserted him. He's found his identity in the Lord. That's pretty cool. Now, at this point in the sermon, 
I could do a couple things. One is that I could say, uh, just like David had an evil army pursuing him, what is the evil army in your life? And make it an analogy for your spiritual life. And that might be okay. But I kind of think that that uh, dilutes the real potency of this psalm. The power of this psalm is that this is about a real person who is in a real terrible situation. It's an absurdly bad situation, and we know that God rescued him. So I don't want to turn it into an analogy. Um, I don't want to say that our circumstances are really all that much like David's. But I do want to say that David teaches us how to pray in this psalm. Psalm 27 teaches us how to pray in difficult and frightening circumstances. It's a model of what to do when you're up against something that you can't possibly control, something terrifying. And maybe, maybe when we were thinking about fears earlier, maybe you came up with something that you thought, I can't possibly do anything about this fear. It's so dark, I don't even really want to name it. And this psalm teaches us how to pray in circumstances of fear. Right? And uh, he, ends this, he ends with this really bold statement that's full of faith. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Wait for the Lord. The psalmist is exhorting himself to wait for the Lord, his readers to wait for the Lord. I'm going to say us to wait for the Lord. Right? And it doesn't make any sense to say this in the circumstances of David's life. It doesn't make any sense to pray this in a cave. Rationally speaking, the better prayer to pray would be, Oh God, my life is very scary and I expect very brief. Please let my end not be too painful. That's the rational prayer. But this is about faith. This is evidence of something unseen. This is evidence of trust in a God who is way beyond even the most frightening of circumstances, right? And, and we do know the rest of the story. Saul did not kill David. David lived a long life. He went on to become king himself and all of this. One of the things I'm thinking as I read this psalm is maybe, maybe sometimes our prayers are a little too small. Maybe sometimes our prayers are not quite as full of faith as as they could be. Have you ever faced a really difficult circumstance, something that you knew you should pray about, something that you could not imagine changing? And so you pray a kind of half-hearted prayer um, because maybe you're afraid that God's not going to do anything. And that if you pray something really bold and nothing happens, then you're going to look dumb, or God will look dumb, or maybe worse yet, you'll worry that your faith was never real to begin with. There's a, there's a fear, right? Maybe sometimes you have faced some difficult circumstance and you have prayed something like this. Oh God, these circumstances are difficult. Help us to endure and to accept your will, whatever it may be. Amen. Have you ever prayed that? I, I have prayed that a lot of times. And I think there is something really really important about endurance. Scripture has so much to say about enduring through hardship. You can look at the life of Jesus and say, oh, the Christian life is not a bed of roses. There are difficult things that happen in the Christian life. If we're following Jesus, if we're taking up our cross, 
we can expect there's some things we're going to have to endure and we need to ask for God's help. But I also think there is a time to pray a prayer of faith that says God is bigger than this thing that I'm looking at, this thing that is so scary that I can't imagine possibly being different. There's a time to pray in the way that, that Psalm 27 does. Maybe that looks a little bit more like this. What if we started to pray in this way? God, we believe that you are with us even in this difficult time. Lord, give us courage to endure these circumstances, but don't let us stop there. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to seek your face. We want to know you in a deeper way. We want to experience your goodness and your saving power firsthand in our own lives. We believe, despite everything we see around us, that you are with us that you will preserve us, and that you will do good things in our world. And when you do, we will offer thanksgiving and praise. We will be joyful people. What if we started to pray that way? Because we, when we pray, we are praying to exactly the same God that David prayed to who delivered him. It would be interesting uh, this afternoon if you went home and you wrote out your own paraphrase of Psalm 27. Write out your lament, write out your prayer, using your own fear. Maybe the thing that you thought about today or some circumstance that's really hard to imagine it changing unless God does something. If you do that and you feel comfortable, send me an email. I would love to, to read what you've written. I think that would be pretty cool. I have an example of somebody who did exactly that. So in 1986... Um, the setting is southern Africa. The setting is apartheid. And there is this Namibian pastor named Zephaniah Kamida. He wrote out Psalm 27 for his own circumstances. This is what he writes. The Lord is my light and my liberation. I will fear no so-called world powers. That's a great line. The Lord protects me from all danger. I will never be afraid. When their security forces attack me and try to kill me, they will stumble and fall. Even if the whole imperialist army surround me, I will not be afraid. I will still trust in God, my liberator. Teach me, Lord, what you want me to do. Lead me along in this difficult situation. Do not abandon me to the worshipers of apartheid and their collaborators who attack me with lies and threats. I know that I will live to see in this present life the Lord's victory over the enemies of the oppressed people in southern Africa. Trust in the Lord. Have faith. Do not despair. Trust in the Lord. That's pretty cool, right? The thing is, when he wrote this, his name had been published in a South African newspaper as an official enemy of the state. They were naming members of the clergy who were anti-apartheid and writing their names in the paper. That's when he wrote this. The rational prayer might have been, God, help me to endure this suffering uh, and whatever happens next. The rational prayer would not, have been, would not have been like this. This is a prayer of faith, right? And, and actually, we know the rest of Kamita's story. Uh, Namibia, his country, did become independent. And when it did, he became the deputy speaker of its parliament for 10 years. And then after that, he became the bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Namibia, and he published a bunch of his paraphrases of psalms in a book. You can, you can get the book. So just, 
is kind of like the story of David. We can see that Kamita trusted God. He cried out to him when everything around him suggested failure and maybe even death. And just as with David, we can see that God answered Kamita's prayer. Now, David's circumstances are not the same as ours. Kamita's circumstances are not the same as ours. But the God that we pray to is the same. Both David and Kamita teach us how to pray in a situation of fear and to turn to trust in God. I think that's pretty cool. I would like to teach you one more little bit of a song. verbatim from the psalm. Maybe we could say it's inspired by the psalm. I don't know. It's the next part of the song. I'm going to invite the band back to the stage. They're going to lead us in singing all of these parts together as one song in a, in a couple of minutes. Uh, one more thing I'd like to say. We have been talking so far about things that are just normal Christian faith. Normal Christian faith is about Choosing to trust God, putting your faith in God despite circumstances around you, despite your fears. And we've been talking about this in individual kinds of ways, right? Each of us as an individual needs to learn how to hand our fears over to God in trust. But I want to say to you that there is also something that is not individual about this. There is something that is corporate about this. There's something about this that involves all of us because we encourage one another to put faith in God, right? And it's not just for us. This is also for the world. I believe we have a calling to a public witness of turning from fear to faith, right? And that this is part of the mission of the church, right? We live today in an anxious world. Human beings have always had things to be afraid of. Human beings have never quite had so much awareness of what there is to be afraid of as they do today. We have the internet. We have 24-hour cable news. We know things to be afraid of before they've even happened, right? We are, it's a very anxious culture. Um, some, of, some of the people in our city are afraid that there will be a coronavirus pandemic. And you know what? They could be right. That's a legitimate fear. 
Or some people are afraid of something happening to the economy. They could be right. That might happen. Some people are afraid that a lot of Western nations are heading towards a culture of uh, maybe prejudice, racism, even fascism. They could be right. Some people are worried that climate change is past the point of no return and rising sea levels are going to create all kinds of problems. They could be right. Our witness is not about saying these fears don't matter, that they're not real or dismissing them in any way. What our witness says is these are real things to be concerned about, but we've put our trust in somebody who's way beyond these things. Right? I want to suggest to you that we have a calling to be a public witness. There's a writer and pastor named Mark Sayers. He says that the church is called to be the non-anxious presence in a non-anxious, or the non-anxious presence in an anxious world. Right? And Paul writes in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We have a call to be a source of stability, courage, peace, hope in a world that is paralyzed by fear. This means we don't deny the seriousness of the circumstances around us, but that we point to the goodness of God even within those circumstances. We say that even in bad times, even when we might have every reason to be afraid, we are people who choose to trust in God because we know, just like he did with David, he hears our prayers. We believe we will see his goodness in the land of the living. We have courage because we belong to an everlasting God, because the one who formed the, the world through his words alone is forming us into his people. We belong to a God who is with us, even though we may pass through water and through fire. We belong to a God who has given us his own spirit as our comforter. And this is not a spirit of fear and timidity. It's a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. We know that we pray to a God who knows our needs before we have even asked. This should give us boldness, the ability to pray with prayers that are full of faith, full of trust in God. We are people with a message of hope and of courage for one another, for the world around us. The Lord is our light and salvation. Of whom shall we be afraid? Amen? Let's stand. We're going to sing together. Amen. I'm going to leave you. Could you put my uh, thing back on the screen? For, for our benediction, I'm hoping we can all say this out loud. This is adapted from a Eugene Peterson book called Praying the Psalms. He encourages you to read the Psalms and just pray with the psalmist, which is a great spiritual practice to be in. So let's read this aloud together from Psalm 27. Lord, we refuse to live in fear. We name our fears one by one, turn them over to you, and find them simply trivial when set alongside your majesty. With lifted heads, we will live in your light and salvation. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.